Section 30 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies, An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases, by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombau. Homicide Part 7 the Goss Utterzook Tragedy, Part 6. Dr. F. T. Miles. I am a professor of anatomy in the University of Maryland. I was present at the exhumation and examination of the remains of the subject of controversy here. I was present at the request of the counsel for the plaintiff. The report read to the jury was signed by me. I concurred thoroughly in the facts herein set forth and in the description of the teeth have heard fully the statement made by Dr. Howard in regard to the teeth and condition of the jaws, and according to my recollection and examination, it is correct. I have nothing to add thereto or subtract therefrom in the way of qualification. Question. Something has been said about the fact that, on the morning after the fire took place, when the remains that were found in the fire were in the barn, some water having been thrown upon them at the fire the night before, there was found some blood and water, which on that cold night had frozen around the box, or which perhaps was dripping from it. Permit me to ask you what that would indicate, or whether it would indicate anything in regard to the recent death of the body? Answer. It would indicate nothing in regard to such a body as that the remains of which I examined. It is possible that the body, long after death, may allow the blood and sanies to come out sufficient to stain water thrown upon it. Taking a body surrounded with the circumstances which have been related here, water thrown upon such a body, in the condition it was, the appearance of a bloody fluid would indicate nothing as to the length of time that body had been dead before the occurrence. Dr. Howard recalled. The bloody water noticed about the box by witnesses, in my opinion, would give no positive indication in regard to the time of the death of that body. I do not think I ever had a subject in the dissecting room that did not bleed readily. The blood which flows from such bodies is altered blood, but it gives the usual red appearance. Question. State whether or not there is any difficulty in obtaining dead bodies for the purpose of anatomical examinations. Answer. No, sir, there is an almost unlimited supply. You can get them for fifteen to twenty dollars apiece, any quantity of them. Witness further testified. I took some hair from the back of the head of the remains, which I examined. Witness produces the same. Question. State whether it has crumbled into dust or powder while in your possession. Answer. No, sir, it is in a state of perfect preservation. I have another small portion of hair which I took from the back of the head, and which I have washed and examined under a microscope. I found it was of a dark color generally. Some of the hairs were of a very light shade, although most of them were quite dark. You will observe in this specimen, producing the hair, some of them are much lighter than others. Dr. R. Wysong I participated in the exhumation and examination of the remains which have been spoken of by Drs. Howard and Miles. I did so at the request of Messrs. Whitney and Johns, the counsel for the plaintiff. 
I joined in the report which was made, and concurred with the others in the conclusion arrived at in the report. I have heard the statement made by Professor Howard and Professor Miles upon the witness stand, and I concur with them in all particulars in what they have said as to the facts. Dr. Gorgias, one of the physicians who united in the report of exhumation and examination of the remains, being absent from the city, was unable to testify. He was a dentist of skill and experience, and had prepared plaster casts of the mouth, which casts or models were used by witnesses in their testimony relative to the teeth. The evidence of Dr. Gorgias not being attainable, Dr. Robert Arthur was called by the defendants, and testified as follows. I have practiced the profession of dentistry thirty-two years. Plaster models of the mouth of subject examined, produced, and handed to witness. The operations of nature, after the loss of teeth during life, are such as to leave it a matter of no possible scientific doubt whether teeth have been lost before or after death, provided they have been lost a certain time before death. It is a matter of physical demonstration. Looking at this model of the lower jaw, speaking as a scientific expert, I would say those teeth were lost, with the exception of the ones from these two cavities, referring to the two which the other physician spoke of as where the teeth had fallen out since death, certainly more than two years before the death of the subject. In this model of the upper jaw, three of the teeth, I should say, were recently lost. The tooth next to the front tooth had been lost, unquestionably, from one to two years. The absorption seems to have been complete, but the eye-tooth and next to it seems not to have been lost so long. The absorption has not been completed. I should infer, from the small cavities, that the front tooth had been lost some time before death. Obviously there was a great deal of disease here. There must have been much physical pain. This place where the penetration appears to have taken place in the roof of the mouth shows a perforation through the bone communicating with the socket of the teeth. The teeth must have been very much diseased to have gotten into this condition. Not within my experience have so many teeth been lost without the patient suffering great pain, and of necessity requiring the services of a dentist. In masticating ordinary food, this person must have found great difficulty. He must have eaten with great discomfort. I would not, by any means, call this person's front teeth quite regular. Teeth that are absent could scarcely be called regular. Even the teeth of the lower jaw must have presented a very irregular appearance. Dr. Charles H. Orr. I am a practicing physician. I have been in practice about forty years. I am at present the president of the medical and chirurgical faculty of the state of Maryland. I reside in Cumberland. I have been present during the medical examinations here, and have heard the testimony of Drs. Howard, Miles, and Arthur. Plaster casts of the mouth of the exhumed subject handed to witness. Question. Supposing these to be accurate models of the mouth of the subject, which was exhumed and examined by those medical gentlemen, and with the professional descriptions that you have heard, Please tell the jury whether or not that was a regular set of teeth at the time of the death of the party. Answer. No, sir, it was a very irregular set. Question. 
state whether or not that was the mouth of a man, in your judgment, who had never suffered any pain from his teeth and never had occasion for a dentist. Answer. In my judgment, he required the services of a dentist on more occasions than one, and had suffered a great deal of pain on account of diseased teeth. Witness further testified, There is very little surface here for the process of mastication or chewing of food. The grinding teeth are not opposite each other in such a way as to enable this person to masticate ordinary, usual food. The abscess at the roof of the mouth would have produced intense pain. Looking at the whole of that mouth, it is physically impossible for the person who had it to chew his ordinary food without pain, and even with trouble and pain, the process must have been very imperfect. Question. What is the effect of fire upon human hair? Answer. Brought in contact with fire, the hair will burn, and will then crumble upon the slightest touch or friction, so far as the fire has been applied. When the hair has been heated but not burned, it preserves its integrity. Question. Have you ever heard of a case, in your experience, when hair burned would not crumble at the time when it was handled for the purpose of putting it away, but which fell to dust afterwards? Answer. No, sir. In my judgment, that is not physically probable. Hair is not a good conductor of heat. It does not burn well. It will ignite, but as soon as it is beyond the reach of the substance which ignites it, it will cease to burn. The Defendant's Close John W. Butler, a witness for the plaintiff, in rebuttal, sworn and examined. I have known W. S. Goss since 1854. He was of an inventive turn of mind. He invented what he called a ratchet screwdriver some years ago. He called at my office some few months before his death and brought what seemed to be a piece of India rubber. Says he, John, I think I have got it at last. I asked him what it was. He said that he had discovered a substance to take the place of India rubber and not cost more than half as much. I asked him why he did not patent it. He said he did not care about putting the receipt for making it on file, that he found it the hardest work of his life to keep the secret even from his wife. A.C. Goss called in rebuttal. I heard the testimony of Dr. Thorne in reference to a buggy. His testimony is not true so far as I am concerned. I have never been in a buggy since I have been in Baltimore. I met Dr. Thorne once before I saw him on this stand. At the time I was accosted by the gentleman whom I have now learned to be Dr. Thorne, I was starting to leave Mr. Langley's office and passed near Dr. Thorne, who was sitting there with his feet on the stove. He got up, extended his hand, and offered to shake hands with me. He said, My hostler has a very fine pair of buck gauntlets, which he says you gave to him. Will you tell me if you gave him the gloves? I told him I did not. Then he said, At the time you got the buggy. I told him he was mistaken in the man. He says, What is your name? I said, Goss is my name, the brother of the unfortunate man who was burned up. He said, That is not the name the party gave me. He gave me his name as Philip Rao. He repeated the name to me three distinct times. I sat there a few moments, and then got up and went home and spoke to my family about this matter. I remarked to Mrs. Arden, 
I shall make a little note of that, for it may come up at some time. And I did so in this little book. Producing the book. I made this little memorandum at the time in the presence of Mrs. Arden. It reads, I met Dr. John Thorne at Langley's office today. He accused me of getting the horse and buggy of him to go on the York Road. He said the name I gave him was Philip Rowe and not Goss. Question. You stated that you took supper at the house of Mrs. Parsons that night? Answer. Yes, sir. I am almost positive I did. Question. Have you any doubt about it? Answer. None in the world. Cross-examination. I have no memorandum by which I can tell the precise date when this entry was made in that book. I think it was two or three weeks after the fire when I had the interview with Dr. Thorne. I had never seen Dr. Thorne before, to my knowledge, and was not then introduced to him. When I got home, I made the memorandum the same day. Question. If you had never seen this man before, and had never heard of him before, tell the jury how you became familiar with the fact that he was Dr. John Thorne. Answer. I think from what he told me. Question. He gave you his Christian name as well as his other name? Answer. I think he told me that, or I would not have made a memorandum. Question. I see that you use language which strikes me as somewhat singular. He accused me of getting the horse and buggy. What do you mean? What particular horse and buggy do you refer to by using that language? Answer. To the horse and buggy he asked me if I did not get from him. Question. It seems to me that a man making a memorandum of that sort, who had never known anything about it before, would have said, asked me about a horse and buggy. Answer. I felt sure when I got home there was a plot and conspiracy against me. Mrs. Arden called in rebuttal. I recollect A.C. Goss coming to my house and making the memorandum that he has testified to. It was done at my suggestion. He stated to me what had occurred. The plaintiff here closed. Dr. John Thorne, recalled in rebuttal by the defense, The statement of the name of Philip Rao, as made by A.C. Goss, is not true. I never before heard of that name. The defense here closed. Defendant's counsel submitted prayers covering two points. First, the question of the identity of the body, of whose burning evidence has been given, with that of Winfield S. Goss, the insured. And second, the question of fraud as presented by the false statements made by Goss in his applications for insurance. The opening argument for the plaintiff was made by H. V. D. Johns, Esquire. E. Otis Hinckley, Esquire, followed in an argument for the defendants. These gentlemen spoke with marked ability and earnestness. The last day of the trial was devoted to the closing arguments of the distinguished counsel, upon whom this duty devolved. S. T. Wallace, Esquire, made the concluding argument in behalf of the insurance companies, and for nearly three hours his rare eloquence held the eager attention of the jury and of the great crowd of spectators who had assembled in the courtroom. Milton Whitney Esquire closed for the plaintiff, and was listened to with evident pleasure by the audience, and with telling effect upon the jury. 
The case finally was given to the jury, with leave granted to return a sealed verdict, and the court then adjourned to the next day. After a deliberation of about five hours, the jury came to an agreement. They were nearly unanimous from the first in favor of the plaintiff. The sealed verdict was duly read in court, it being in favor of the plaintiff for the full amount of the insurance, with interest added. Defendant's counsel gave notice of motion for a new trial, pending which the court adjourned. End of section 30